We pray that uh, indeed you will give us fresh eyes to see, ears that will listen, and hearts that will take to uh, will truly take to heart what you are saying. That will be open, not hardened. It will be softened by your Holy Spirit, so that we can see the world as it really is and know how to live here as your people. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, um, what are some of the joys of living in Singapore? What are some of the privileges of living in Singapore? Uh, maybe for some of you, uh, you enjoy going to the museum, the park, or going to an exhibition. No, that's probably not right, right? Probably more like shopping, eating, and watching movies, right? But uh, it is a privilege uh, to live in the world that we live in today. And uh, I guess there's so many modern conveniences in the world that we live in today. Uh, we've got air conditioning, you know, sit here in the heat, there's fridges, the supermarkets, there's mobile phones, there's Wi-Fi, there is uh, our iPods and our iPhones. And like some one person uh, said to me, uh, we have a good gig going here. So if you could draw a picture of how you view the world today, um, a symbolic picture of how you view life in the modern world today, what would it be? Uh, maybe you draw uh, a big oyster, because you know, the world is your oyster. Or maybe it would be like a big apple, right, like uh, New York City, where it's all there for you to take. Or maybe it's like a big blue planet, you know, it's like the whole world, we're all like planet citizens. But I think that as we look at today's passage, uh, it, it paints for us a very radically different picture of the world. So if you look at uh, chapter uh, 17, verse 1 of the book of Revelation, this is a picture that is drawn for us, which is really quite shocking, because it is not a way that we normally see the world. Anyway, so it says that in chapter 17, verse 1, uh, One of the seven angels, where the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute, who sits on many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adultery. Verse 3, Then the angel carried me away in the spirit to the desert, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The title was written on forehead, Mystery. Babylon the Great and the Mother of Prostitutes and the Abominations of the Earth. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. So here, I um, uh, really want to thank uh, Sarah again who draws these pictures for us every week. So here again we see a picture of, of what we, you know, we read. And I think it's very helpful to actually uh, have someone uh, draw this picture for us. Uh, and there you can see uh, the woman sitting on the beast. Uh, on the waters, and uh, with the name Babylon. Uh, actually, it's not really on her forehead, but it's there, right? Here you can see the word Babylon up there. But is this a picture that we see of the world today? Is this the, the way we, we look at uh, the society in which we inhabit? Well, probably not, right? Because uh, this is the world seen from God's perspective, from the heavenly perspective, from the glasses of holiness and righteousness. And it seems as if, as we look at uh, this picture, without that heavenly perspective, without the glasses that God gives us, seen from His righteousness and holiness, we are unable to see the world this way. And why is that? 
Well, if you look at this passage, chapter 17, uh, it says there that the world was drunk. Uh, or in verse uh, 2, it says we were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. And the word here, intoxicated, literally means a state of drunkenness, uh, a, a state in which your logical thinking or your critical thinking is, is abandoned because you are under the influence of something else. Uh, and in fact, the next slide. Uh, in fact, it says there in chapter 18, uh, a, a different metaphor, a different way of expressing it. In verse 18, verse 24, chapter 18, verse uh, 23, sorry. It says that by your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. So the reason why we living in this world cannot see the world in this, in this vision, in this symbolism, um, without God's help, is because it's almost as if we are hypnotized, right? You know, you're, you're growing very sleepy, very sleepy, right? And, uh, and, and, and we, we, are in, we are intoxicated or under the spell on trance uh, by this great prostitute. And I guess that's why uh, she's called uh, the great prostitute. Because part of uh, the, the symbolism of uh, this prostitute is that the prostitute seduces and entrances and allures and entraps you. We're giddy under the spell of her perfume. And that's why if you look at verse 4, of chapter 17, the description of her is one of great uh, enticement. Right? Isn't it what it says there in verse 4? The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. Now we're not actually given a description of what she looks like, but what she's wearing, but we don't imagine her as being someone who is unattractive. Right? We, 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 we can imagine that she's like, some Miss Universe or supermodel or movie star, right? And she's not dressed modestly or conservatively or some sort of business suit, but she's dressed like someone at the, the red carpet in the Academy Awards or, you know, going to a gala dinner at the Marina Bay Sands. You know, she's, she's dressed in purple and scarlet, great splendor. And she's decked out in the finest jewelry, you know, gold, precious stones and pearls. And uh, if if we had our... You know, if we were there, you know, you can imagine it. It's like she's probably wearing Chanel number no. 5 or something, okay? I don't know, but apparently that's something that women wear, okay? So, because the great prostitute is a picture of seduction, uh, where she's trying to attract people into her lures. So here, um, this great prostitute seems to be a, a very alluring and attractive character. But her attraction is almost universal, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's worldwide. Because it says there, if you look at the next picture, okay, uh, I'm really thankful that uh, Sarah drew this for us because she sits on these waters, right? And the imagery is that she's like astride on this water. And uh, in verse 18, or sorry, verse 15 of chapter 17, it says there, The angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitutes sit are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. So here, this water is actually uh, a visual symbol of just how overwhelming and widespread and universal the enticement and the allurement and the entrapment of this prostitute is that she doesn't just seduce part of the world, but she seduces the whole world. She's attractive to every culture, every nation. She, she's enticing them. And uh, the whole world, it seems, is uh, seemingly drunk on, uh, on, on, her, on her wines. 
And that's why in verse 3 it says here that the angel carried uh, the, uh, John, who's, who writes the book of Revelation, away into the desert in, in the spirit. Now, when you look at uh, verse 3, it, it, it should, if we have been reading and following the book of Revelation over the last few weeks, bring something to mind. Because every time uh, it talks about the desert on the spirit, it's always God who's speaking through the Spirit to John, and he sees a vision. And the desert was a place where God takes his people to care for them. Right? So it's almost as if you have to come out of Babylon uh, into a vision from God's perspective and in the care of God before you can see what society and civilization is really like, that she's like this great prostitute. So given this perspective of a heavenly perspective, right, given these glasses which we can see through the righteousness and the holiness of God, we can actually see what uh, this great prostitute is like. And the first thing we see is that she's holding this cup in her hand, right? But generally, uh, if you hold a cup, you can't see what's in the cup. But here, God gives us a vision of what's in the cup itself. But anyway, this cup looks very attractive in itself because it's a solid gold cup. Uh, uh, I guess uh, I've only got gold on my little finger here, my wedding band. So imagine how wonderful and, and alluring a whole gold cup must be, right? So she's holding this, this beautiful gold cup, uh, probably all gold, not just uh, you know on the outside. And inside the cup in verse 4, it says that this cup was filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. Now, uh, what does that mean, uh, abominable? It's not something that we usually use in our everyday language. Right? The closest thing I can think of in abominable is like the abominable snowman, right? Or the abominable yeti or something, right? Um, abominable usually means detestable, uh, impure, unclean. In the Old Testament, the word abominable usually refers to uh, idolatry. All the idolatrous practices are abominable before God. But on top of that, it says there that uh, this cup is uh, filled with the filth of her adulteries. So if, if the abomination is uh, like an attitude of being impure and ungodly before God, then these uh, adulteries uh, are filthy before God. But what does that mean, adulteries? Uh, if you look at this passage, you keep talking about adultery, 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 right? But what does adultery mean? Well, adultery usually means unfaithfulness. Right? You, you commit adultery, you've been unfaithful. So here, it's a picture of uh, this great prostitute who's unfaithful. But how is she unfaithful? How is she committing adultery? Well, she's unfaithful to God in the way that she lives. Right? This, this filth of her adulteries, of her unfaithful lifestyle before God. So, here, uh, this abominable uh, things and the filth of her adulteries are probably a reflection of the attitude of turning away from God and a lifestyle filled with things which are ungodly before God, filthy before God. And uh, what she does is she attracts the world to make them think that this ungodly attitude, uh, unfaithful living before God, is actually a very attractive way of living. You know, it's like they get drunk on it. The more they drink it, the more they get intoxicated, and the more they want to live it out. And I think that in a way that's really true uh, because the world then and the world today seems to say that, you know, if you live your life 
without God, that's a really uh, good way of living. It's a, it's, it's a very trendy, cool way of living, right? Uh, and uh, it's not the new normal, it's the old normal, right? And like, it's like what Frank Sinatra sang, you know, he said, uh, I, I did it my way. That, that's a picture of living life without God, I just do things my way. And uh, in the world we live in, when you just open a newspaper, uh, the, the ungodly lifestyle, the sensual lifestyle, is something that seems to be very uh, attractive to people. You know, uh, money, women, mistresses, watching things on television or inter- on the internet, which uh, you shouldn't be watching, but it's attractive in the world's eyes. But these things, according to God, are an abomination in the filth. But from the heavenly perspective, we don't just see what's in a cup, right? But we see what's written on her forehead. And again, as we always say in the book of Revelation, this is symbolic, right? It's not as if she has a tattoo on her head, right? But on her forehead, it says, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. Now, the word here, mystery, uh, does not mean mysterious or, you know, something like a, uh, something you can figure out. Like, um, I don't know, you probably don't remember, like the famous five or Nancy Drew or something. People don't read books like that anymore, right? But anyway, but, you know, it's, it's like something you can figure out. But it's not something like that at all. It's a mystery because it has to be revealed to us by, by God. And when God reveals this true character of this great prostitute, we see uh, three things. It's Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, and the abominations of the earth. Now, why is this great prostitute called Babylon the Great? Uh, okay, Babylon uh, was in the ancient world. Okay, on the slide. Okay, so Babylon is there. And it was the capital in uh, 500-600 BC of the Babylonian Empire, which is all this purple area, okay? And you can see that Babylon uh, was in uh, this uh, confluence of uh, major rivers, the Euphrates rivers here and uh, the Tigris on the top. Anyway, so Babylon was just here. And it was, it, in a sense, uh, when it says the great prostitute sits on many waters, it also speaks of Babylon because Babylon here was very famous for having lots of water around it because it sat on the Euphrates River. But why is Babylon mentioned here? Well, Babylon is famous uh, not just for the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which was one of the seven wonders of the world, right? but it was famous because it was, it was a place in rebellion against God. So it conquered God's people uh, in 500 to 600 BC. But their king... King Nebuchadnezzar was a very proud man, and he he saw himself as as a godlike figure. So Babylon becomes a symbol of human society or human uh, 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 you know capital, human civilization, uh, which stands against God and God's people. But Babylon, uh, this place here, was also many people believe the site of Babel. Uh, and if you look in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, uh, Babel, you know, you remember the Tower of Babel? Babel was a place where a, some of the human people first came together to try to be like God. They wanted to make a name for themselves and they wanted to build a tower all the way up to heaven. Right? So here, Babel and Babylon basically stands as a symbol of human civilization being like God or trying to be like God. Uh, finding satisfaction and security without reference to God, 
finding meaning without God, trying to build God out of their lives. And that's why, if you look at this, uh, the, the name it says Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great. Because here Babylon was trying to be great, greater than God himself as, as an, uh, uh, an opposition to God. But the scary thing is, uh, as we see more and more of uh, the character of this great prostitute in Babylon, uh, it's, it's scary enough that she's so alluring and seductive and attractive, and she represents uh, human society in opposition to God, but she's trying to draw all these people to live this lifestyle and have these attitudes. But the scary thing is in verse 6, the next slide, oh, sorry, this is why I said Genesis, right? They want to build a tower to have a name for themselves. But it's not enough that she stands with opposition to God, but she actually actively gets drunk on the blood of the saints, on the blood of those who bear the testimony of Jesus. In fact, in chapter 18, uh, verse 24, it says, In her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints, and all of all who had been killed on the earth. So, um, it's not saying that... Uh, the whole world is actively involved in killing Christians, but it's saying that this this human archetypal archetypal society, which actually stands in opposition to God, um, is not just content with uh, having God as a rival, but it actively wants to destroy God and destroy God's people, and it seduces the whole world to come into her clutches and and actually participate. By its thinking and its lifestyle to persecute Christians. Now, I agree with. Oh, I didn't bring my uh, illustration, my my bag. That's missing. But I'll, I'll get it in a second. But um, you see, what's actually happening here is. Um, oh, don't worry. I'll, I'll get it later. It's okay. Yeah, thanks. You see, what's actually happening here is that God is saying, "Look, you know, wake up from your slumber, shake yourself up from your drunkenness, and see the world that we're living in." And see that the world that we're living in, and many things in the world that we're living in, that it is not desirable, but it is undesirable. That the world is not trustworthy, but untrustworthy, and in fact, it is dangerous for us as we live as Christians in the world. The closest thing I can think of is, uh, if you ever watch any horror movies, uh, I, I don't watch many horror movies ever since I got married, but before I got married, you know, sometimes you watch these horror movies on your TV, you know, just for the heck of it. It's always good when you're a bit tired to get a bit of a shock to the system. So, you know, you watch things like, you know, The Shining. That's a very old movie, Jack Nicholson when he was young. But, you know, you watch things like The Mummy or something like that, right? And um, there's always the hero, and then uh, he's seduced by this beautiful woman, right? some beautiful, alluring woman. But then, at some point in time, uh, the hero re- recognizes that this alluring, beautiful woman is actually, you know, uh, some dead creature or something, right? The eyes all become sunken and the cheeks shrivel up and, you know, he sort of becomes, she becomes this decaying skeleton in his hands. And instead of, you know, having all this beautiful appearance, she's made out of like maggots and worms and beetles, right? Well, I, I think that's what the picture is, is, is giving us here, isn't it? That God is giving this vision uh, to us through Apostle John. And, and we see what the world is like and it looks so alluring and wonderful from the outside. But we actually see that from a Christian perspective, from God's heavenly perspective, 
She's very dangerous. She's decaying. She's an abomination. She's filthy to us. And it, it warns us. So we must be very careful in what we are seduced by in this book. But uh, that's not all, isn't it? Because, <clears throat> uh, the next picture. Next one. Oh, okay, go, go back to the other one. You see that um, this woman is not just the central picture or figure in this picture, right, because she sits on this uh, quite grotesque and ugly-looking creature, the beast with the many heads and the uh, many, uh, many horns, right? The ten horns and the seven heads. Again, metaphorical, because can't fit ten onto seven. Okay. Now, she, th she sits on this beast, but this beast seems to be very different from the woman. First of all, this beast uh, has, it says there, uh, in verse 3, the beast is covered with blasphemous names. Blasphemous names. Okay? It doesn't mean that it's got all these tattoos saying, you know, Jesus is not God or, you know, Yahweh is not really God or something. But blasphemous names is because the beast calls itself or sees itself as God. That's blasphemy. Alright, if I say I'm God, that is a blasphemy. So that's, that's what this beast symbolizes. It symbolizes uh, the henchman of Satan which sees itself as equal to God. But the character of this beast is not like uh, the woman in, in that it's alluring and entrancing and uh, seductive, but it represents, seems to represent power. And that's why it says there, it's got seven heads and ten horns. Now, we, we see later on in the description that the heads and the horns uh, basically represent kings. kings. Anyway, we know from uh, the earlier part of the book of Revelation that horns and heads are representative of a power and authority. So, here this beast is, is representing power and authority. And it is a, a representing a power and authority which seems to be uh, indestructible. It's like the Energizer Bunny, right? Or the Jurassic, whatever, Rabbit or whatever, okay? It just keeps going, going, going. Because in verse 8b, uh, and, and it keeps saying, and, and Earlier part we read, you know, this beast, it once was, is now is not, but yet will come. Uh, and earlier on, we read in chapter 13 that this is the same beast where one of the heads seems to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound has been healed. So this beast is almost like a mockery of Jesus, because Jesus was the lamb that was killed, it comes to life. But this beast seems to be able to have the power to die and to come to life again. And it seems to, go, to be able to do it over and over again, and it astonishes and amazes the world. So how then do we understand this woman and this beast? Well, I think that they work hand in hand, at least uh, initially, right? Because uh, the woman represents like soft power, soft cell, allurement, advertising, seduction, propaganda, right? But the beast represents hard power, hard cell, right? Authority. Uh, force, uh, laws, rules, which it uses to persecute God's people and attack uh, God. Now together, uh, this beast and this woman seem to be quite a terrifying combination. It's a, it's a winning combination seemingly in this world. Isn't it? And uh, it's sort of saying in the world that we live in, that's the nature of the world, because you have soft power, soft cell, and you've got hard power, hard cell, and both of them are working together 
to persecute Christians and to attack uh, God through his people. So God opens the eyes of his people and says, this is what the real world is. Okay, Wake up and smell the coffee. This is what it looks like. But then he, he then brings the vision forward. You know, in the book of Revelation, we always have this fast forward button. And he brings the vision forward. And, and no longer are we looking at the nature of the world, but the future of the beast and the future of Babylon. So in chapter 17, uh, at the end there, we see the future of the beast. And what is the future of the beast? Well, in, in verse 12 of chapter 17, it says, The ten horns you saw are ten kings who had not yet received the kingdom, but who for one hour received authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose, and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Now, if you look at this uh, passage, it's like, this beast looks so powerful. Right? It, it looks so uh, unbeatable, indestructible. It keeps coming and coming again. But, it says here in chapter, 12, uh, chapter 17, verse 12, all the way to 14, that this beast, when it stands up against the lamb, the lamb will come and it will overcome it. That the beast has no chance. It will be like a six love, six love, six love, right? It will be an overwhelming victory. And in chapter 18, even though uh, this Babylon seems to sit on so many waters, it's so universal, the whole of chapter 18 is a, is a lament. Okay, it's a, lament is a, a, type, a, a type of biblical literature, right? Where something has died and we feel sorry for it. And here in chapter 18, there's a lament. And the lament basically comes from three sets of people. The kings of the earth, the merchants of the world, and the seamen. Alright, so the next slide. Okay, so I'll print it out for you. Now each of these uh, groups of people, the kings, the merchants, and the seamen, they all lament over the passing of Babylon. But they lament the different parts of Babylon because they missed out on, uh, on, you know, on, on that part. So the kings, they're really sad because they, they, they missed the power. They missed the power of Babylon, right? But it says in one hour, uh, your doom has, has, has come. The merchants, they, they miss uh, the glitter and the linen and, the, and, and all these precious stones right, that they would sell to Babylon. But again, in one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. So power has been brought to, to ruin. Great wealth has been brought to ruin. The seamen, okay, um, again, world war, great city, because of all the ships on the sea, became rich for her wealth, and again, one hour she was brought to ruin. Now, basically what it's saying here, even though Babylon looks so powerful, so universal, so alluring and attractive, in one hour, now one hour is not a very long time, although it seems like a very long time, uh, when, um, you know, to, but generally, one hour is very short, like, in the whole day, right? So, like, one hour, in one hour, a very short time, uh, this whole archi- you know, architecture will be gone. The whole architecture of, of the world, of human society, will be destroyed. And it's a very complete destruction, right? In verse 22, 21 to 23, there is no more music. Uh, there is no more work, no more millstone, right? No more millstone to make food. There's no light. And there is no marriage. And it says that the destruction of Babylon, the great prostitute, will be like a great millstone thrown into the sea. Now, uh, if you look at the next picture, 
Now this is a millstone, okay? A millstone was what was used to uh, to to uh, ground grain, to make fine flour, to make bread, right? So you have the two millstones together. Now imagine if you take this huge millstone, I don't think you can even lift it up, right? I don't think anybody can lift it up, I said maybe Maynard now. Alright, so, you know, you can lift this up and throw it into a body of water. What happens? Within maybe two or three seconds, the millstone will sunk to the bottom and all that's left on the surface of the water is just ripples and it's gone. And it says that's what Babylon will be like. It's like, it seems so overpowering, so widespread, but it will be, it will be gone and you won't even see it anymore. Now, that is the nature of the world and the future of the world. Right? The nature of the world is that there is this great prostitute, Babylon, which is anti-God, anti-God in his living, which seeks to draw everybody in, to make it attractive not to worship God or to live his way. But it is also supported by the beast, right? power, authority. But the future of the world says that all these things, the world, the beast, they will all be destroyed and in a very short time and there will be nothing left. So if we can see the, the vision of what this world is really like in the future of this world, then, then how should we live as Christians? Well, there are a few ways and I think that, uh, I hope I don't bore you with the many ways that I'm looking at. But the first thing is, the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we living the life of a, a deceived Person. Are we deceived in the way that we view this world? Right? Are we drunk? Are we entranced by this world? Or do we see the world from a biblical point of view? Because that's the first step, isn't it? Because unless you can see the world for what it really is, and you see the danger and the undesirability and the unattractiveness of parts of this world, then unless you're convinced of that, you will not you will not be able to move on from there. So the question is, are we slumbering and sleeping on under the drunkenness of this world? Or are we able to see, based on God's eyes and the Bible's eyes, what this world is really like? To see the danger that's out there. The second thing then is, if we can see the danger, we can see where this world is trying to seduce us and draw us away from God and to live in a in an adulterous and unfaithful way, then chapter 18, verse 4, is the one section where God actually speaks to the people, His people. Chapter 18, verse 4, it says, Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, and so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Now, once you recognize that this world is a dangerous place, that there is a great prostitute, and the whole human society uh, uh, view of living in an ungodly, practicing ungodliness is, is wrong, the Bible says, come out of it. Come out of this world. Do not be seduced by this world. Now, it doesn't mean uh, this, right? It doesn't mean that we must live like the Amish. Okay, so we, we set up our own society here in Haogang, and we don't use coins, and we just, uh, you know, grow our own food or something. It doesn't mean, uh, next slide, that we go and live in a monastery somewhere, right? It doesn't mean come out in this way, as in we geographically or physically come out of this world. But it means that there must be a, a coming out of this world in terms of our heart, our inner reorientation, 
Because if this great prostitute is sitting on many waters and trying to seduce and deceive people, then coming out of her means don't go into bed with this world. Don't buy into her favors. Don't succumb to her perfume and to her allure. So how does that uh, work out in reality? Well, uh, this is where if you look at the passage a bit more in verse uh, chapter 17, chapter 18, you'll see that um, the prostitute of Babylon attracts people uh, mainly through a, a few different ways. And the first way is it deceives people with the promise of materialism and, and luxury, isn't it? Now you can see that right at the very beginning because of her description. You know, she's dressed with gold, precious stones and pearls. Uh, you can see that as well in chapter 18, verse 1, 11 to 13, where the merchants of the earth weep and mourn because no one can buy their cargo. Gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, you know, citron wood, all sorts of things, okay? And uh, in chapter 18, verse 7, next slide, right, you, you can see uh, that this is the heart. Chapter 18, verse 7 is like the heart of the, the attitude of the prostitute. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. Okay, so this world stands for glory and luxury through material wealth. And um, in the Babylon of her day, in 500-600 BC, was an exceedingly rich uh, place. And in John's time, uh, the Babylon of his day was probably Rome. Rome was a very, very exceedingly rich place. Um, and again, Rome was sit, sat on seven hills, which was uh, referred to here in uh, the passage, right? Now, Rome was so rich that according to my, uh, uh, my, my commentaries, uh, one historian wrote that if you wanted to see the whole world, right, instead of going around the whole world, all you have to do is go to Rome. Because if you went to Rome, you would see the whole world. And he said that you know Rome has so much riches that he is difficult to imagine what it would be like in the places where they brought these things from. There would be no fruit on the tree, he said, because Rome has so much of, of the produce of the whole world. But the problem is that uh, Rome, and in this world, uh, the Romes of today, they attract us to this lifestyle. They hook us in and they draw you in with the luxury and the splendor of uh, this material wealth you know, of luxury. So I remember when I was um, thinking of doing full-time uh, paid Christian work, uh, I, was, I was in Australia then at this stage, and uh, my, my dad actually said, oh, you know, he wasn't a Christian then, he said, oh, you know, you should come back and work in Singapore for a couple of years, right? Taste the good life, and that's the exact word, he said, you must taste the good life, right? And uh, if you taste a good life, you know, you'll see you, you won't want to do full-time Christian work anymore. Right? And, and, and it's true, isn't it? Because when you get seduced and attracted by the luxury of this world, then uh, your, your Christian walk can be affected. So I remember this guy who was doing youth ministry with me before, many years ago. And he was a civil servant. Now, not to say that there's anything wrong with being a civil servant. But he was a civil servant, right? And he was sent to San Francisco for uh, six months. Then when he came back, he was completely changed. Right when he went back, went to San Francisco, he was a geek. But when he came back, he was a dude. Right. So like you know, he used to go to San Francisco. He was like kind of square. He wore this really uncool glasses. Then he came back. Wow, he was wearing contact lenses all the time. Right. Then he was wearing really cool clothes all the time. He changed his hair, cut dyed his hair. Went started going to the gym all the time. 
And I said, what happened to you? He said, oh, you know, when he was in San Francisco, you know, he really changed his view of life, you know. He, was, he used to go to five-star hotels, go to the clubs, do all sorts of things, you know, fast cars, whatever else. But uh, when he came back, he never went back to work in youth ministry with me again. Uh, he didn't go to Bible study, and after a while, he dropped out of church because he was sucked in and drawn by this luxurious lifestyle of, uh, of living like this. And I think that um, we can be like that, isn't it? We are drawn in by the luxury. You know, you just look at the, the straight times or the newspaper. I've got to buy this watch. I've got to drive this car. I've got to have this look, right? And after a while, the things of uh, the Bible and the priorities of uh, what Christian life is about, it all becomes lost. So I was uh, reading, um, and I always recommend that you try to uh, have a Bible reading plan. So last week, on uh, September the 7th, which is a few days ago, I came across this thing, uh, which is up here on the slide, right? Uh, about uh, this uh, reflection on Ezekiel chapter 10, which is very similar to this. And uh, Don Carson was writing. He says, um, Why do we choose what can last but an hour before we must leave it behind? Why do possessions exert brutal power to render us harsh and unkind? Uh, why do mere things have the lure of a flower whose scent make us selfish and blind? I think that's uh, almost what this passage is speaking of, isn't it? That, that possessions become the be-all and end-all of our life, and we just want more and more and more. And uh, as a result, we are seduced and sucked in by the great prostitute of this world. But some of us don't just pursue money because of luxury and uh, you know splendor. But if you look at this passage again next slide, um, look at what uh, Babylon uh, boasts about. This is the only time Babylon actually speaks in the, in the Bible. Right? In her heart she boasts, I sit as a queen, I'm not a widow, I will never mourn. Okay, so she, she's very boastful. And what does she boast about? She boasts that she will never suffer, that her wealth and her, her material uh, riches Give her a refuge from all suffering. And I think that sometimes as Christians, we pursue money that way. We see money uh, in the same way that the world sees money, is that it is a barrier to suffering. So we keep pursuing money, more and more money, and ultimately, it falls into some temptation where we trust our material wealth to give us protection and uh, security instead of turning to God. And that's why, um, if you look at the next slide, right, the kings of the earth, what did they mourn about uh, Babylon? They mourned that she was a city of power. And the power comes because of her wealth and her riches. And remember, in, uh, if we see the context of, uh, of the book of Revelation, remember Revelation was written to those seven churches, which represent all the churches in the world. Remember the church of, this church was it again? This church was in Laodicea, right? It says that she, the church said, I'm rich, uh, I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. See, that's what happens. Sometimes we pursue wealth, money, because we want security in life. We want to become uh, you know, insulated from any worries or troubles. But actually, that's the lie of the world, isn't it? Because money cannot buy us a security. It cannot save us. Ultimately, it's our relationship with God. So again, uh, we see in uh, chapter 18, verse 8, 
money doesn't save Babylon in the end. She says that, but in verse 8, Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her death and mourning and famine. She will be consumed by fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. I wonder whether we are like that. Uh, again, next slide. This is a reflection from the September the 7th again. It says, um, why do we stubbornly act out a role convincing the world that we've won? Uh, why for, or maybe I didn't write it down, sorry, okay. Why for mere winning will we sell our soul in order to be number one? Why sear our conscience so we are in control, despairing of what we've become? Right, so, it, it's, it, you know, we have lots and lots of riches and everything. Our tendency is to put our trust in our wealth and our riches instead of God. Okay, so um, the second thing I think is the deception of pleasure, isn't it? The deception of pleasure. Uh, because here, if you remember, I don't know where I got the next slide. Is there another slide? Okay, go back. You know the cup that the, the great prostitute holds? People get drunk on uh, the, wine, the filth of her adulteries. And you can get drunk on hedonism and sensual living. You know, you, you live not for God, but you live for pleasure. You live for, uh, you know, sensual pleasure. I, I mean, I'm not saying that gluttony is, you know, some, something is talked about here, but, but it's that sort of idea, you know, like sexual morality. We live for sexual morality. We live for holidays. We live for, for everything else that we can enjoy in this world. We want to suck the world dry of, of all the pleasures that we can, we can get out of it. But then, as a result, we lose our focus on God. So again, in Pergamum and Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, right, remember the church was falling to sexual immorality because she loved pleasure more than God. And uh, in one of the sermons that I heard, I think it was Mark Deaver, he quoted this guy called C.J. Mahaney. And I thought it was really relevant and I'd like to share it with you. He talks about worldliness here. He said worldliness is a slow process of gradual weakening, a subtle contaminating and an eventual conforming with the world. We are drifting inwardly, although outwardly we seem the same. We sit in church, but we're not excited to be there. We sing songs without affection. We listen to preaching without conviction. We hear the word, but we don't apply it. The love of the world begins with a dull conscience and a listless soul. We don't grieve over sin. The passion for the Savior begins to cool. Excitement lessens the participation in church. Uh, eagerness to evangelize starts to wane. And there's no growth in godliness. See, that's what happens, isn't it? Because when you live for this world, and you just live for pleasure, and you become more and more worldly, then all these things happen outwardly. You could be doing all the same things, but inwardly, you're drifting far away from God. And uh, when I was uh, younger, and my kids were younger. I used to read my kids this book um, uh, called The Vanity Fair. And I keep coming, to, uh, sorry, not Vanity, Pilgrim's Progress. Next slide. The Pilgrim's, the Pilgrim's Progress, right? Okay, this is a picture book. But in The Pilgrim's Progress, um, very, very, I think it's supposed to be one of the most popular uh, Christian books outside of the Bible. It talks about this guy's journey uh, to become a Christian and to go to the heavenly city. Okay, so, it, you know, it's a very powerful uh, symbolism of what happens. Anyway, this guy called Christian, he's on his way to the heavenly city. But on his way to the heavenly city, he goes to this place called the Vanity Fair. Okay? And in the Vanity Fair, it says here, there were stalls where every foolish trifle in the world 
was up for sale. Uh, knickknacks of gold and silver, baubles and brick and bright and precious stones. In addition, you can buy titles, honors, preferments to high office, and vain pleasures and empty delights of every kind. So as they walk through, you can, they can, I mean, you can't see the pictures because very well, I suppose, but you can sort of get a feel. You know, all sorts of pleasures of the world are given here. You know, uh, and as they walk through, they're tempted to to stop and stay at Vanity Fair instead of actually progress all the way to go to the heavenly city. And that's exactly what uh, this passage is talking about, that this world is, is asking us to stay here and stop and live for the pleasures of this world instead of view heaven as our final destination. And that's a, that's a lie of the prostitute. Last uh, of all, I think there is uh, the, the danger of popularity, right? You see, Babylon is international cosmopolitan, and wherever you go, you will face Babylon. You could go to uh, the North Pole, and Babylon will still be there. Right? And Babylon uh, tries to hurt you in two ways. If you're a Christian, Babylon tries to hurt you in two ways. One, it will try to seduce you with her attractions. But the second one, if she doesn't seduce you with her attractions, she will try to drink your blood. Right? Now, uh, if we are seduced, we will assimilate into society. We'll become like everybody else. But if the Babylon is trying to drink our blood, the great danger for us is we compromise. Because compromising means that we don't stand out and uh, don't get our blood drunk. Because obviously it's not a very pleasant thing, isn't it? So instead of standing out and coming out of the world, we sort of like blend in like a, you know, a chameleon sort of thing. But, but God says very clearly here in verse 4, chapter 18, Come out of her, my people. Right? What does that mean? Well, in the original Babylon, 500 and 600 BC, in the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishra, and Azariah were God's people. And they were totally immersed in Babylon. They were trained in Babylon. Uh, in Babylon. They were spoke the Babylonian language. They served in the civil service. But they still came out of Babylon. Because they were told to eat the food, but they said, no, we will not eat your food. They were told not to pray, and they said, no, we will pray. So coming out of Babylon means doing things that the world doesn't want you to do, and means not doing things that the world wants you to do. Right? It's not just not doing things, but also doing things that are right. And that's why it is very, very important that we must not seek to always be popular. You know, it's a very real desire of all of us to be popular, right? Nobody wants to be unpopular. But there will be times where we will not be popular because we are come out of this world. We've come out of Babylon. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, it's an excuse for your personal weirdness or your peculiarities, right? You know, you keep uh, clearing your throat all the time or, you know, spitting around or, you know, making weird noises, right? It's not saying that. It just means that as you as you live as a Christian, you come out of this world, you will be unpopular, and you will be persecuted for it. But because we understand the nature of this world and it's you know this Babylon, when we do that, we will be persecuted. But we are to keep doing it because we are not living for this world, but we're living for heaven. So again. Coming back to uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, next slide. Oh, sorry. Yep, sorry. Yep. So anyway, um, when uh, Christian and his companion 
uh, go through Vanity Fair, they um, they don't buy anything. Lah. Okay, so they don't buy, and the people in Vanity Fair, they're not very happy. So um, they ask them angrily, why aren't you buying our merchandise? Buy, buy, buy. Right? We buy only the truth, they said, and put their fingers to their ears and sought to turn away their eyes from beholding vanity. At that, the townsmen were more enraged and the noisiest of the of hubbubs and shirts. And then in the end, they were uh, put in, in stocks, lah, as you can see here in this picture. Right? So ultimately, if you do not assimilate into this world, right, and you stand out and you do not buy the things of this world, buy the lies of this world, then you will be persecuted. But that's what the book of Revelation has told us, and it's told us to be prepared for that. That if we share in the sins of this world, we will share in the plague and the punishment, and we do not want that. We must come out of her because we do not belong to the beast of Satan, but we belong to Jesus. So in conclusion, as we have seen in this passage, how do you view this world? There are many things that are good in this world. I like air conditioning. Right? I like a fridge. I like a light, television, all those sort of things. I think those are all good things. Right, but, but what about the attitudes in this world? Uh, what about the attitudes which are portrayed in the movies that we see or that we hear about in our workplaces? Uh, the practices that the world seems to think are okay. Well, if you look at those things and you think, well, uh, we can go along with it and that's alright, then I think we're all sadly mistaken because uh, this passage is very clear that this great Babylon is there to seduce us and to make us drunk and intoxicated and entranced with her magic. And we must always keep coming back to God's word and seeing the world from his eyes that really there is great danger and she is undesirable and untrustworthy on this great Babylon, this great prostitute. And we need to come out of her, stay well clear of her, not get into bed with her and not participate in her adultery. Because that is the only way that we will avoid the punishment that she will receive. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, help us to see the world through your eyes from the heavenly perspective. Help us to see and not be drunk and not be intoxicated or entranced by the magic of the great prostitute, the Babylons of this world which entice us with luxury and splendor and enjoyment and sensuality and uh, a lifestyle which lives outside of your rule and worshipping and giving glory to you. And may we examine our hearts as well to see that we are free from uh, going to bed with these ungodly attitudes, that we may come out of the Babylon of this world. Uh, dear Father, as we look at ourselves all the more, may we be willing to come out of Babylon. Maybe we're willing to um, face the hard times that come by being different because we are your people. That though the world may seek to drink our blood, that though the world may attack us as it attacks you and attack Jesus, may we always stand firm because we know that this world is passing away and that this passing away will be complete, like a millstone thrown into a great lake. 
that there will be nothing left. Help us to see that with that future in mind, may we always hold on to Jesus instead. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.